When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up, a podcast about books, writers, life, and love, and all things literary. This week on the show, we have Tom Parata. He's the best-selling author of nine works of fiction, including Election and Little Children, both of which were made into Oscar-nominated films, and The Leftovers, which was adapted into a critically acclaimed Peabody Award-winning HBO series. His other books include Bad Haircut, The Wishbones, Joe College, The Abstinence Teacher, Nine Inchins, and his latest, Mrs. Fletcher. Now, this conversation, I think, has to come with a a warning. I don't think there's any bad language in it, but definitely adult themes. Um, it's really funny. It was such a favorite. We laughed a lot, and I hope you do too. I'm very excited to have Tom Parata here this morning, and um, he has written a gripping, thrilling, um, maybe a button-pushing book called Mrs. Fletcher, and he's going to read kind of right into the heart of this topic issue that's going to bring up a lot of things for people. So here we go. Okay, well, this is sort of the inciting incident of the book, Eve Fletcher, Mrs. Fletcher of the title, uh, is home alone. Her son is left for college. Her empty nest is very empty. Um, And she gets uh, a text that leads her into trouble. It was the anonymous text that led her here, the one that had arrived last Friday night. She'd forgotten all about it until Saturday morning when she turned on her phone and saw that idiotic message staring back at her. You are my MILF. She wasn't sure why it had bothered her so much. It was probably just a harmless prank, the handiwork of a drunk teenager getting his late night kicks. Texts like this, were the digital equivalent of obscene phone calls. Send me a naked pic. All she had to do was delete it and get on with her day. But she kept squinting at those words, floating so innocently in their cartoon bubble, as if they had every right to inhabit her phone. Before she realized what she was doing, she'd typed a reply of her own. I'm not a MILF, you little shit. Luckily, her good sense kicked in before she pressed send. There was no point in engaging with an anonymous pervert, giving him the satisfaction of a response, a reward for his harassment. MILF, 
She knew what the acronym stood for, of course. She hadn't been living under a rock. Or at least she thought she did. In her mind, it was just an updated name for the old Mrs. Robinson stereotype, the predatory middle-aged woman with a taste for younger men, maybe even boys who were Brendan's age. That was the main thing that creeped her out, the possibility that the text had come from one of her son's friends, or maybe even his new roommate. I want to come on those big floppy tits. What kind of person would say something like that to a friend's mother? And what if it was Wade or Tyler or Max, boys she'd known since they were in preschool, whom she'd taken to the beach, who'd slept over at her house? It made her queasy to imagine one of them thinking about her body in such prurient detail. And they're not that floppy, she thought indignantly. They've actually held up pretty well. One thing she'd learned from her web search that morning was that she'd been conflating the terms cougar and MILF, which turned out not to be synonymous at all. MILF was a broader, more passive category, basically just any mother that is sexually desirable. What that meant, Eve realized, was that you couldn't really say, I'm not a MILF, because a MILF was in the eye of the beholder. The other thing she'd learned was that you shouldn't Google the term if you don't want to find yourself swimming in an ocean of porn. There was no doubt about it. Milfateria.com was part of that unregulated cesspool the assistant DA had warned about so many years ago at the PTA meeting. Eve was regularly shocked and frequently disgusted by what she found there. She disapproved of the site. She would have been horrified if she'd ever found anything like it on her son's computer and sincerely wished that it didn't exist. But she couldn't stop looking at it. So my kind of silly question to start with is, did you invest in Milfateria before this book came out? (laughs) Well, uh, what I did do was um, a a friend of mine bought the domain name because what I didn't want was somebody else to see it in the book and um, decide to try and use it in some other way because I didn't, uh, yeah, I just, I don't want to be. The creator so it of a isn't porn a site. real place it's, at the moment. I mean, it's a real place in the book, right? Right, <laughs> but not not in your world. Because I thought, I thought, oh my gosh, millions of people are going to read this book, and everyone's going to become a porn addict. <laughs> <laughs> They're already porn addicts. Those they, people. They are. They are. So I have to say that whenever porn comes up in any of the books that we, you know, that I have authors on. Sometimes if we don't get to it in the interview, as soon as the microphones go off, it is what we all, we spend about 15 minutes talking about here as we walk to the elevator. Like we actually can't stop. It's like this topic that just keeps going and we're all riveted by it. So now we get to bring it to the open. And I mean, why do you think most people want to talk about it when the microphones are off? Well, I actually think this is... um something of a generational difference. Um, I think the people... So I I went to college in the 1980s and porn was very disapproved of. I think at that point it was kind of a... thought of as a dirty, exploitive business um, and feminists in particular had a very um, well-developed critique about porn as a way of objectifying and oppressing women. And... Porn wasn't also available in the way that it is now, right? You had to go.
go someplace and buy a magazine. Um, this was even before video stores, so they were theaters, porn theaters. So that was a very considered a very like sleazy thing to go to a porn theater because um, you'd have to share whatever that was with whoever else had gone in. So that was the cliche of the pervert in the raincoat, you mm-hmm. know, at the porn theater. So in the 90s, I think, video stores started having these uh, sort of rooms for X-rated videos. I remember as a kid, that room seemed so illicit, you know, or even if there was a section, not really even a room, you know, you'd kind of, your parents would kind of usher you past it and you'd just be like, what is that? Right, and if you ever went in, you had to have that weird thing of eye contact with the other people who were looking (laughs) for some porn video that Friday night. And so again, there was always this element of it wasn't a private fantasy world. It was some odd public space where you had to sort of expose yourself as somebody who was here, here I am, you know, looking for this. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I still remember, uh, you know, that I was, well, I think it had to be also in the nineties then when, um, suddenly we had dial up internet and I, you know, the first time that, that I saw porn on a computer, it was like, this is a whole different thing because it's, it's potentially so private. Um, and, and there's no sort of real-world consequences for it. Um, but I also remember, you know, being overwhelmed by the amount and the variety of it. Um, but so I think people who are younger than me um, have grown up with that. And I think it's a fundamentally different context for, for porn. And so, so I notice that younger people are willing to talk about it and laugh about it, whereas people my age, I think there's still a kind of... Um, a taboo about it. And there's still a lot of, especially women I know who just say like, I never look at that. Um, and I'm, it makes me uncomfortable and I'm offended by it. Whereas I find fewer young people that I think it's just a part of the world that they have to grapple with, um, for good and for bad. Well, I heard on another podcast, you talk about discovering Lord of the Rings in middle school. And I wondered if, like, for middle schoolers in this day and age, like, discovering porn for them is the thing they do when they go home from school. Uh, Well, that's actually, I'm I'm curious about that. Um, And and what does that mean um, for, you know, I just was reading about Japan and there was uh, this amazing statistic which said, like, uh, some maybe like half of Japanese people in their 30s have had zero sexual experience. Like, I have no idea if this is possible, but in the article, these women were all saying, well, these guys just want to watch porn. They don't want to deal with um, with actual women. It's just, you know, sex in the real world that involves another person is very complicated, but, um, you know, watching porn is really simple and doesn't interfere with your video game life. Well, and we will get back to the book. <laughs> but... <laughs> So reading this was so fascinating because I have so many friends, like if you end up being single again and you kind of go online dating and there's a great um, quote you have that Amanda, one of the, I mean, she's kind of in her late 20s, early 30s, um, who's moved from Brooklyn to Haddington, a kind of smaller town. And what does she say about Tinder? I'm just looking for the great quote where she likens it to tequila. 
Oh, yeah. Fun today, sad tomorrow. Fun today, <laughs> sad tomorrow, but sometimes you can't help it, you know? <laughs> but kind of speaking to that, um, like if you're single and you're back on and Tinder or just trying to like have a relationship, everyone can tell when they sleep with a guy how into porn he is. It's like this flash that happens and you you know it. And I've spoken to so many women about it. And then on the flip side, it's like these men, just like you said, who actually are not turned on by a woman right in front of them. And that's a real issue. And people actually, they can't have relationships with women, like with these women. And it's a really, a, such a sadness there. And I'm thinking of Brendan in the book, Eve's son, and how, I mean, he is able to have sex with women, but there is this kind of fine line. I feel like he's on the way. Even though his porn consumption isn't really talked about in the book so much, but... I mean, I know I'm not really asking a question. Yeah, no, and, and I, I will say, um, you know, the book follows Eve's son, Brendan, through college, and I think there's a certain dread that the reader feels because <clears throat> you sense that he's the kind of guy um, who could get into trouble in college because he is um, not really thinking about the women that he's with. You know, we hear him say, talking dirty but in a kind of... Um, creepy way early on um, and we see him talk about women in certain ways and his academic advisor looks at him and you know feels the need to say hey do you know about consent and there is a kind of ambiguous uh, and unpleasant sexual encounter that he's involved in but my point wasn't so much that he was forcing himself on this woman he was with who he actually cared about it was more like she just wasn't even present in his mind you know, um, and that I think is um, maybe that's just the danger of being a young man. Um, in, but it may also be a kind of a, a a porn thing where this is about me. It's not about it's not about her. And so he's, you know, kind of trying to get off while thinking about his his own life and not he's never really checking in with her. Um, now that could just be bad sex. Or it could be bad sex filtered through a kind of experiences with with porn. I, I, you know that I I don't know, um, and it's true that I don't talk so much about him. And and you know I don't want to just. It almost sounds like I'm being extremely disapproving, but what I'm trying to say is porn is just a part of this culture, whether people know it or not. Um, and people have a variety of experiences, and there's this huge variety of porn. So Eve is an older woman who feels um, disconnected from her sexual identity, and this term MILF that gets applied to her in this anonymous text actually leads her into a world that offers her um, like a reinvigorated sexual identity. Like if I try on this label, I'm sexy again. I'm a MILF. Um, there's a place for me in this um, sexual culture. And, and once she puts it on, it kind of eroticizes the world in a new way. Um, so I'm much more interested in sort of the variety of experiences that people have um, now that porn is ubiquitous and the way that it um, colors you know, the entire sexual culture, even for people who don't know that that's what's happening. Yeah, for Eve, I found it was an awakening for her. And 
I mean, in that way, you talk about there's so many different types of porn, and one of the one of the moments I really love in the book um, is when well, she has she realizes that she loves the seduction. So it's like right, there's all this porn that just like let's get into it, wham bam, and it's usually from the male perspective and it's driven by that, but there is all this porn that's obviously really made for the female sensibility where there is like particularly the lesbian MILF porn um you know the scenarios are you know she arrives you know with the low-cut top like a friend with the bottle of wine (laughs) and there is what I loved is that there's the way you describe it there's the moment when you know the reluctance falls away and almost that is the like there's that That's it's the, a potent moment that you that for a woman is like you wait for and there's this acknowledgement. I thought it's the moment we love in real life, right? You know, when all the courting and the looks and the kind of, you know, flirting, when there's a moment where we're like, oh, we're going to do this or like let's move somewhere. And I thought you captured that so beautifully and how – I guess w- why was that so important for Eve to ha- to discover that for herself? Well, you know, one of the things I, I was really interested in is so much porn um, suggests that there's no such thing as consent, right? Everybody, you know, a lot of porn will just start; they're already doing it, right? We never see how they got there or how they know each other. It's just it's just happening, and that's a very male, I think sense of it like let's get on with it well like of course she wants it we all yes we all know and and i think eve is drawn to um watching this sort of ritual of of seduction the problem is for her she doesn't know if she's the seducer or or the seduced and she's there with amanda but i also will say her experience what she wants is the exact opposite of what amanda wants amanda goes on tinder when she's feeling low and she finds a middle-aged guy who will come and just basically – she knows what's going to happen before he arrives. There's not a moment of seduction. And like, she actually doesn't want these men to try to seduce her or be nice, you know, because it's just in the way of her getting what she wants. Yeah, so it's interesting. So you see a kind of old-fashioned attitude from Eve where she wants she wants to see some romance in, in her porn. And in fact – in fact, that's the only moment of suspense. What people do after they decide to to go to bed is always kind of ritualized and, and not that, um, you know, it, it's potent, but it's not surprising. Whereas I think even though this is also a ritual, this seduction, she finds it, um, that's the powerful moment. That's what she's looking for. Um, and, it, you know, it is the opposite of a lot of other other point, and you hear this from women that they want, or I hear it in in my reading about <laughs> about porn. I don't get a lot of women telling me about what they actually want from uh, from their porn, but I I read that there is this female friendly porn that involves, you know, much more, uh, you know, talking scenarios. Well, I think I was thinking back because, gosh, I mean, the internet was barely around when I was a teenager. And I think, you know, when just thinking of erotic awakenings, right? So I actually wrote a big, a piece for Cosmo all about porn when I was there. And I had thought I went into it with like very 
you know, strict ideas, like all the feminist ideas that Amber has um, in the book and Eve does too, you know, ideas of like you talked about that it's degrading to women and but I kind of went further into it and talking to a data scientist who had looked deep into porn, um, you know, he said, your, your fantasies, your sexual fantasies are really shaped by very early experiences, like childhood experiences, positive, negative, you know, it all, you know, who knows, it all feeds into it. But sort of, so if children see porn really young, it's going to shape, like those images are so powerful that they can help shape things. So I was just thinking back, I was like, well, what shaped my, you know, I think I have a few kind of strange ones that I've <laughs> since been like oh that's where that came from like climbing under a table at a wedding as a child anyway we won't we're not going to get you into know, that <laughs> we're not going to get into that but I Look, remember can I interview you yeah <laughs> but I also remembered a friend giving me um uh, erotica when I was 14 you know kind of I've talked about this before but slipping the book to me I remember being in her bedroom and going just read this and it was Delta of Venus and I thought, oh, like that was my porn. It was, but I read it, but it, because it was, I mean, it was written by a woman, but also so much of it was, most of the stories are just leading up to the point and beyond, but it's all the suspense that goes into it. Um, well, and I think, I think, by the way, that accounts for some of the amazing response to Fifty Shades of Grey, that, that there is something... Uh, there's some imaginative space that opens when it's language rather than like human bodies in, in your face. You know, I, I do think um, there's a, it's almost a relief not to be confronted with the, you know, so, some porn is just so in, in your face and, and um, it can be overwhelming. But I do think people, because I had the same thing with a paperback book porn, um, that a friend of mine's older brother had laying around the house. And I remember just sort of disappearing into this erotic, you know, there's like, you want to go out and play football? I'm like, oh, just, just a minute, you know, I'm very caught up in this, uh, in this book. But, but actually my, and, and this is a weird, a weird story because it, it, I think does connect with internet porn and, and how it reminded me of this very early experience. My dad worked at the post office and, this, this is back now in the 1960s where um, the post office was a censorship. Uh, it was a place of censorship. Like there were certain, oh, they decided what couldn't be shipped through the mail. So something like Playboy could, but things that depicted actual sex acts, they would confiscate. And my father would have my brother and I come and he was like the groundskeeper, among other things, at this small suburban post office. We would pick weeds and we would cut the grass but then we'd hang around while he did his work. And I remember I actually found the trash barrel that included like all the confiscated wow. pornography. And I stole this, um, it was like a catalog for European videos. And they had little thumbnails of just everything. You know, it was just like, it's like there it was, my entire like sexual brain education. Explosion. And, and I went and I hid it in the attic. And it seemed so um, radioactive that I n maybe I went back and got it a couple times. But just it's, at a certain point, it, I just knew it was hidden up there. And but I never went back because it was really was like shocking what Explicit. was what was there. And 
some years later when I was maybe in college, I thought, let me just get that thing and throw it out because I don't want my mother <laughs> to find it. Um, so I went up to this hiding place where it must have been sitting for like five or six years, and it was just gone. So I don't know, I don't know what happened to it. My, mom, my poor mom found it and just decided not to say anything, or it, I threw it out years ago and didn't remember throwing it. I don't know what happened, but that was this early mind-blowing thing. And then when Internet porn came out, and there'd be these like thumbnails of videos that would just have like a little still from a sexual act. And I'm just like, oh, it's just like that radioactive pamphlet that I hid in the attic. I had a, I found a penthouse. I mean, that's pretty explicit too, I guess. Well, and like you said about the advent of the internet, in my piece, I talked to people at Pornhub and all around and actually learned so much about kind of the advent of porn also and how that um, kind of, collided with the handicam and the zoom like mm. so sony's handicam and that function of a zoom changed porn and it also meant that um you could get so close so then of course why would we have hair there if we want to really get into the so it was just fascinating but mm. to kind of switch tacks a bit another line i love um eve has this realization and she you know she's thinks porn, the porn world, in the porn world, no one seemed to have heard of sexual harassment. And I thought all fantasies usually are based on some power dynamic or some illicit, you know, like doctor-patient, things that in real life are illegal or like not, um, you know, frowned upon. And like, do you think porn exists like without that dynamic or do you think it's just not the friction isn't there well you know what i what i really think is that there's a, a weird ecosystem because you know for instance when i was in college relationships between teachers and students had not been they were frowned upon but they were not in some sense illegal right so sexual harassment is a relatively recent um, term and, and it suggests that you know a sexual relationship can't happen in a context of unequal power, um, and I understand you know why why that's happened. Um, but as you say, um, the charge comes from the unequal power, right? And power is also there are also Who, many forms yeah. of power, um, and. So, of course, Eve is implicated in this. She is uh, a boss, and she starts to have a crush on one of her employees. And um, But well, what I was about to say about the ecosystem is, you know, up, up here, you know, in the right-thinking world, we're saying we're trying to um, insist upon consent, and we're trying to um, set very clear boundaries about what is appropriate sexual behavior. And, and all these inappropriate things that we have tried to purge from decent society immediately get shoved into the porn world where they develop this erotic charge, right? So it, it, Eve starts to notice that um, in the porn world, if you see a doctor and a patient, you know you're not going to get, you know, a, a smart diagnosis and a good bedside. You know that they're, they are going to take off their clothes and, uh, you know, the doctor's going to get rid of that coat. And uh, if you see a... Um, personal trainer and a, a person in a gym, you know, that's going to uh, devolve into some, you know, gymnastics on the weight bench. Uh, you know, uh, every 
basically everybody wants the same thing, she says, and, and no one fails to get it. And so I think we just, our fantasies are constantly um, in tension with our, our rules, right? And, and there's always a charge, a sexual charge in this idea of like breaking the rule. Um, which well, is, you're really interested in that because little children is all about that tension. And I guess it's interesting because that was infidelity, you know, involved there. I quite liked that in, in Mrs. Fletcher, she's able, she's free from those moral concerns because she's single. Right, she's free from adultery, but not free from yeah. the idea that she has uh, committed sexual harassment. Um, and that she's very attracted to well, a younger man as well. And that role, you know, I just, of course, that role reversal that we'd congratulate some, well, I wouldn't, but like a man's peers, I'm assuming, like men get congratulated the younger their new girlfriend is or the younger their wife is, whereas when that's flipped you know, we think it's weird or, you know, I mean, even Macron, right? That's fascinating mm. how we've actually, people didn't really go there. I was so interested at how everyone was like, okay, we'll just. Well, well partly because um, it goes against uh, the rules that we've set out, right? We would say, um, so she was his teacher I don't know that they started uh, seeing each other when she was his teacher. I guess it happened somewhat later. But um, in the U.S. right now, that that's just not not good, you know. Though though there is all this uh, interest in these female teachers who have sex with their students. When men when men do this, it just seems predatory and horrible, and nobody's interested in those guys. But the culture is very very interested in these women um, who transgress. And um, and I think there are always voices saying it doesn't matter whether it's a woman with boys or a man with girls. A teacher should not be crossing this boundary. And, and I think we all agree, like, that's the right thing. But for some reason, one version of it is a porn fantasy, you know. And, uh, I, you know, you'll see these, like, lists on the Internet of, like, hot teachers who have, you know, been arrested for being with their students because they, in a sense, they seem to be participating in some uh, male fantasy. And I think men, a lot of men find that um, provocative. And also how we can, I can never say this word, (laughs) compent, oh my gosh, compent, I really cannot say that word. We know when you put things in little boxes. Compartmentalize. Yes, so you said it. Thank (laughs) you. but I'm just thinking with Macron, it's interesting. We needed him to win so badly that I think because, um, you know, we wanted France to go that way in the election, we're like, let's not talk about this other thing he did. Um, but but I, I, I think actually it does suggest that human beings are more complex than the rules that we're trying to set. So speaking of professors, there's a wonderful character in your book, Margot, and, I mean, if, talk a little bit about her because she also kind of pushes these boundaries, but she's a trans woman. And I wondered if Catelyn Jenner's kind of transitioning influenced this. I was just, I did the timing in my head and I was like, was this happening? Did you want 
to kind of, I mean, not make a comment on her at all, but it does feel like our culture has like radically, I was going to say radically embraced, hopefully, but then of course what Trump has just done, I mean, kind of stripped. Some parts of our culture have embraced. Some, yeah, some (laughs) have and some haven't. And some just can't conceive of it because... It's the most basic way we have of sorting human beings. You know, you're in this – you go to this room or you go to that room, you know. And and I think the idea that that there's um, something else beside those two rooms or that that there shouldn't be defined room – I'm using rooms as the men's room and the women's room, you know, um, as as a metaphor. But, um, yeah, I I think, again, we live in – there are multiple Americas and – they have diff- very different ideas about whether this is a good idea or a terrible idea that that trans people are part of our community. Well, and there's a really powerful scene where she goes, so we haven't said that Eve works at a senior citizen center and she's the director there and so is her um, colleague, but she's Amanda's boss. We've talked about them, but there's a really poignant moment where Margot goes to speak to the elderly community, you know, within that center. And I could just feel that, the tension in that, like how generationally we are different and we don't, older people, there is, I think there's a line where you talk about a lot of old white people acted like it was still 1956, like they could say whatever they wanted and not have to take any responsibility for their words. I mean, I thought that I had, and next to my notes, I've wrote, written the mooch <laughs> slash Trump. <laughs> Just comment, <laughs> Tom. Like, what are you? I mean, that's yeah. obviously an issue that's happening in the country now. It's happening in Australia, where I'm from. When I talk to you know my parents, sometimes about certain issues, there is a clash going on. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, there's a whole bunch to talk about. I, you mentioned before about Caitlyn Jenner, and and I, it it is. I know people won't believe me when I say I started the book before um, she had her moment of of stepping onto the public stage. Though oddly, Margot is um, a woman who uh, in her previous incarnation had been a professional basketball player. So there was – all I can say is that Margot was – not meant to be as close to yeah. Caitlyn Jenner as it turned out to be. There was just, um, I was just very interested in this idea of somebody who had been very successful, apparently successful as, you know, as a male in this society while feeling the whole time that that was not who she was. So, and that turned out, you know, Caitlyn Jenner had that, that um, similar story. Uh, and, and really what I was trying to do in writing it was just show characters grappling with the um, amazing fast pace of change um, in the discussion of gender. Like I started the book in 2013 and right around the time I did, I had a discussion with a friend who was in divinity school and she was saying, I was asking her about the course she was taking that summer. She's like, we almost didn't talk about the subject matter this year because we got obsessed with gender. All we could talk about was gender. And she said, and there was this, a lot of question about whether what what pronouns we could use, and I'd never heard that discussion before. And this was like like four years ago, um, and then suddenly these issues became like 
ubiquitous. You just could not um, g- get away from it. I, anyone I knew who was an academic would say, yeah, the first thing we have to do is sit down and kind of ask everybody what pronoun they, they want to use. And there was not really a, an agreement yet about what what those might be. And it got it got very, it sounded very complicated to me, you know, whereas it may not sound very complicated to people in their 20s. Sure, you just call people what they want to be called. Um, but it actually, for a lot of people my age who've just spent, well, uh, forget me, my mother who's in her 80s, you know, I say, well, mom, there are new pronouns. Like, she just doesn't want to hear it, you know. It, 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 her brain is just not wired to do it. And so this scene that you're talking about of Margot going to speak to the Senior Citizen Center, um, it, it, it was, a, a, I think, just I, I was trying to show in the book people of various ages sort of responding to this new way of thinking about gender and identity. And, of course, um, this, the people at the senior center are not especially open to it. And it's a, a kind of a humiliating moment for Margot because she feels like um, she's trying very uh, hard to connect with these people, even though she kind of knows that it's an uphill battle. But it just, it turns out she just, they're just disgusted, uh, you know, or she senses a kind of disgust coming back at her from the audience. And it's um, a kind of traumatic experience for her. Well, and in her case, she's having her um, kind of sexual, I mean, I wouldn't call transitioning her sexual awakening in any way, but she has to do that publicly, whereas, you know, Eve or someone else gets to do that privately. Or like, you can have your own sexual kind of, I keep using a word awakening, and I don't really mean that, I'm not quite sure what the right word is. But with porn, you can have it privately. Or even with another partner, you can do what you want to do privately. But when, you know, the body you were born with doesn't reflect who you feel like, you have to do this thing publicly and then you're forced to deal with what other people's judgments. Whereas you can sit at home and watch porn with, like, horses or whatever it is and no one's judging you. <laughs> Guys, what? What? <laughs> 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 That is not where I go. I just came to me. <laughs> no, but for the for the Cosmovies I did, I did, I mean, you, I'm sure you went on a deep dive. I came across some crazy stuff, like women who dress up as ponies. I mean, and, and like in the bridles and everything and have these crazy high heels on and like go into a paddock and they trot around but... Like, like as if a horse was like rearing, so they're kind of trotting, but with I'm doing this weird um, hand. This is, this is the sexiest thing I've ever been. <laughs> but part it, it doesn't. I kind of look like a I don't know clawing something. I mean, I was just I didn't find it erotic at all. But I love how you kind of say in the book, like you can start watching certain things and think, oh, this is not for me. Oh, I'd never do. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh. Trot a little more, honey. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm just making this up. I have not had that experience with this. Sure. Oh, I don't know why I'm going into this. Uh, maybe I didn't know I liked it, and now it's it's been. No, like I like it too. I, I have to say, well, you, you make it sound so so appealing. <laughs> well, I've completely lost my train of thought because I'm way I'm in the paddock. Um, <laughs> Oh my gosh. 
okay. I'm just going back to the nights. No, I, well, I think you were you yeah. were talking about, uh, you know, Margot's the public aspect of of um, of her sexual life, and and I think um, you know one of the, it's it is something that I I I know for a fact that a lot of um, people after they transition may discover that their sexual orientation changes. Um, and this is the case with Margot, you know, uh, in, in her previous life, uh, she thought of herself as heterosexual. She had a wife, she had a, a child as, as Mark. Um, and now she's for the first time thinking that she may be a, a straight woman. Um, and she's dating a, a man who's also in, in this class and, um, you know, it, it it's a very vulnerable moment. She's she's a woman in her forties, but she is in effect thinking of herself as a teenage girl. You know that all of um, all of this is new. All of this is sort of, you know, scary and and giddy, and and she can't really keep it to herself. You know, she's and I, I love this idea. You know, in in Little Children, I began with a quote from Flaubert uh, and Madame Bovary and. When she falls in love, um, she thinks of it as a second puberty, um, and I think that this is certainly for for Margot. There's that aspect. Well, and what's particularly poignant in a scene in the book is where she she knows that for some men they like the idea of being with her, or they might really like her. But there could be a moment with every encounter she has where they decide they can't do it for whatever reason because the idea of it is too confronting for them. And that was – it was so touching because I was just like, oh. Like it's, it's something I guess, you know, if I've ever been with someone, I've never had to have that moment of like, oh, my sexuality or where I am on that spectrum – is at a point could put someone off or not. Yeah. And there's just so many things that you just don't have to deal with if you're just like straight down the line, you know. It's not mm. fair. No, it's not fair, but it's also something that is new. Yeah. So the um, man that she's with, uh, the man in particular in this book, it's probably a first time for him too. I mean, um, I think one of the points of the book uh, is that – each generation kind of reinvents the sexual culture. And the moment right now is a very complicated one, partly because of porn, I think, but also because of our sense that different um, gender and sexual identities need to be included in our community. Um, so there are just a lot of people trying to figure things out without a lot of historical... Um, you know, uh, customs surrounding it. Like we, we kind of know what, um, straight sex is supposed to be, you know, but, um, you know, a gay culture is relatively new in America, open gay culture. And, um, certainly, um, trans culture is, is a new phenomenon. And so we're in that, that very interesting moment when people are making it up as they go along. And that's a, I imagine a, a often awkward, um, and sometimes exhilarating process, you know. Well, I was just thinking, I think last week Teen Vogue had a big controversy because they had kind of a sex 
you know, in magazines you like call them these packages and I'm only like, I, I never understood what that meant, but it's like a few pages of, you know. And they had a, a sex educator kind of writing, a, writing about anal sex, like, you know, don't do it if you don't want to, if it hurts, all these things. And the outrage, you know, there was some mum that public made a video and people were burning teen vogues everywhere. And it was almost like if you haven't got with the culture, also like gay men read Teen Vogue, you know, it's it was just very much like also it's like this is happening. So either you can be a parent who's trying to shut yourself off from what the reality is or not. But I just thought it was an interesting moment having had that just happen and then reading your book and going this kind of revolution you're talking about people don't know how to deal with it well. And it's like, I was just thinking like of the mum burning the thing. And I'm like, well, who knows what she does? You know, does she never watch porn? You know, it's how we've decided, you know, that morally we do one thing, but really privately people do very strange things. Sure. and But I also think, um, you know, we're all aware that th- these changes have happened very quickly. And you know, in some communities, everybody's on board. In some communities, some people are on board. In some communities, almost nobody's on board. And and so it's just going to become a, a political, political issue. And and just for instance, last night I was talking to somebody, and, you know, this was like in a kind of progressive Brooklyn school. You know, they were just going to get rid of the, all bathrooms were going to become gender neutral. And there were some young girls who were not thrilled with this. Like, I don't want to be in the bathroom with, with the boys. And some of the parents were like, you know, that's, that's transphobic. And it, it just seemed like, we, boy, we've gone wow. very quickly to, um, you know, that, like, that was a big leap, you know. And, and um, I, you know, I don't know that um, the girl, was, you know, was that transphobic? She's a, you know, a, a young so. woman who doesn't, who's worried about being in the bathroom with, with boys, and I don't think she was actually. It wasn't the trans people who were making her uncomfortable. No, it was. Not at all. It was the boys. <laughs> you know. But also, it's like when I've been thinking about you know when the public bathroom issue came up. I was like, you know what? You as a woman, you're scared going into a public bathroom that's unisex. You, I am. You know, if it's a public bathroom, not in a establishment or anywhere. I think it's so tricky, but it's like here, are, but also the new generation, like here are young kids. Well, they they won't have those issues, um, you know, amongst their peers if they're all integrated in that way. Yeah. No, I, I, all I'm saying is it's, that, that. It's a bomb. Like you say in the book, you know, as Margot says to the class, like it's a minefield yeah. and like let's work out how to manage it. Right. And, and you know, that. I love the class that Eve takes with Margot because it's more like a 70s style encounter group. She's just basically having the students talk to each other about their experiences of gender. Um, because I do feel like sometimes the discourse can get very dogmatic and like you're not allowed to say that, you, you know, basically this adult was telling this kid, like, you're not allowed to say that you don't want Why? a gender neutral bathroom, you know, rather than like, let's talk about the complexities yeah, why? Of gender. Have you had a bad experience? You know, have what's? Yeah. Why do you have fear? Or you know, those right? I feel like it's gotten very um, polarized and dogmatic very quickly, and I just uh, that's partly the result of just change happening 
really quickly. And um, just people starting with very different assumptions, you know, if, if, because, you know, most people, certainly my whole life, I just assumed that there was some element of biology and gender. And there are people now who are trans activists who are just really trying to radically separate, you know, biology and gender. And, and you know, you'll obviously talk about gender in a very different way if you think biology has nothing to do with it. And I just, um, you just have to make sure everybody's accepting the same assumptions um, to have a conversation, I think. Well, and I'm not sure where I heard it. I read an interview you did where you said that in college you had an experience where a friend said to you, like, what does it matter to you what that person is? And I thought, I really, I mean, you can talk to what that was specifically um, about, but it really struck me because I thought, like, gosh, why do we care about other, like, why does it make, why does what other people do that has no effect on us make us angry? Yeah, so I was I was just talking about the fact that I grew up in, um, you know, in a very sexist um, working class culture and, and um, you know, just grew up in a very homophobic way. Like a homophobic joke was just, that was just, talking to my friends, you know, we just thought it was hilarious. And, um, and I, I went to college, uh, thinking that I had never met a gay person because it was too scary to be a gay person, openly gay person in the town where I grew up. And so I, I think I'm, you know, just brought a kind of casual homophobia to college with me. And, and at some point people started, you know, challenging that. And, and I started meeting gay people and, and suddenly I was just full of shame. I was like, why was I, um, thinking that I could be on board with de- depriving them of their happiness. Why did I think that that, you know, it was just, it all fell away at the first sign of resistance because there was nothing behind it except some desire, it's desire to feel superior. You know, I think Margot is, is thinking about the resistance she encounters in the world. And one of the things she says is um, feeling superior was its own reward. Um, we all like hierarchies if we're at the top of them, mm. you know. Well, and I really like um, Brendan's roommate, Zach. Um, I mean, I don't know if I re- – I don't really like him. <laughs> <laughs> but he just on that point, I was like, I wasn't going to talk about him. But you know what you just said, like, is such a powerful moment where he says, um, you know, I didn't want to talk about women the way we did. Like, I didn't like who I was really when – we went, you know, when we talked about, we were demeaning to women. And so he kind of extricates himself from the friendship. And I just, I liked that part. <laughs> I mean, when, when kind of, kind of the creep jock kind of has a slight awakening. Yeah. And I, I do, th- you know, it is definitely part of my sense of, of Brendan and is that people do change and people, to get educated, I went through it myself. Um, you know, Brendan's a little slower, and he wants Zach to be like his friends from high school. He, he's in—that's his comfort zone—is to joke about women in certain ways and to um, think about women only in in sexual ways. Um, and Zach, who is his sort of almost like his doppelganger roommate, um, sort of finds himself in a relationship that challenges um, some of his 
some of their ideas about about women and um, we don't really understand what's going on in the course of the book. Brendan just feels Zach sort of pulling away from him and he's not sure why and a part of the um, you know action of the book is Brendan discovering that Zach has been on this sort of interesting journey that um, has left Brendan in the cold, you know. Well, it's interesting when you get left behind because, well, A, people don't really like you that much, but because <laughs> of your, like, everyone out there, remember, you know, I'm like, I have, don't hope that hasn't happened to me. But, but when your views, so it just shows you if society is moving forward and you, if there are more people that think um, kind of progressively in some way, you kind of can get left behind if you don't catch up. But if the majority are thinking, you know, one way, you're allowed to just perpetuate the status quo. I yeah, guess. well, it's, it's sort of an interesting thing because I think the there are two possibilities when that happens. The other is, you know, maybe I need to rethink mm. my attitudes and I can be follow Zach's lead. Or, and I think it's something we see increasingly in society, there are communities of men who just reject all that and say, I'm just going to go and talk to people who think like I do. We're going to play video games and we're going to complain about women in the way that we want to, you know, we're not going to change. We're going to aggressively um, embrace our status as, uh, you know, pariahs within this um, mm. prog progressive culture. So that's, that's the other danger is just men will find, um, you know, enclaves where they're not challenged. Well, I don't want to end on that sad note about men and power and we're not going <laughs> to, like, go to what's happening in politics. But oh, just, I guess, you wrote The Leftovers as well. I'm wondering, and that's about the rapture. Um, in your home growing up, was there a sense um, that this was something that was going to happen? And then just a second part to that question do you think do you think any of the characters in Mrs. Fletcher would survive the rapture? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, first, no, I, I was raised Catholic and Catholics don't believe in no. the rapture. Okay. Um, and what happened for me was just I got interested in evangelical Christianity as a political force in America. And, and in relation to these issues we're talking about now, which was, um, you know, there was this culture war through the 90s and 2000s, which was much more about um, gay rights, but also contraception, um, you know, Christians sort of holding the line on this very traditional view of sexual mora morality, which is only this kind of sex is permissible. It's sex after marriage. It's between one man and one woman. Uh, it's, you know, procreative sex, et cetera. Um, and in the course of immersing myself in this evangelical culture, I started to come across people who talked about the rapture in um, you know, very interesting terms. Like they expected, if you see uh, surveys, you know, at least in the year 2000, you know, some tens of millions of Americans expected to see the rapture in their lifetime. This was something I barely even thought about. And, but it just also started to seem to me like this beautiful metaphor for the way that we lose people, um, all the time and it's just so a metaphor of loss and and somehow it just the idea just stuck in my head and um 
to take the religious meaning out of the rapture and just have it be pure loss um, seemed like a really interesting dystopian mm. scenario. Um, so that that's where that um, that came from. I think Margot might survive. Well, I that's love the, Margo. you have your you have your own utopian vision. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the question is: Is surviving the rapture a good thing or not? No, this I is, don't know. You're right. Uh, if you're a Christian, it's not. That means like Jesus found you wanting. Yeah, I. Oh. The world looks like a pretty dark place at the moment, so I don't know if I want to survive. Is that dark? <laughs> oh, that now we ended on a really positive note. I'm really smiling, <laughs> so I don't know what. Can we go back to the ponies? Yeah, we. <laughs> I kind of want to find some like pretty ponies that aren't the. I've made them sound quite alluring, but when I saw it, but. Just to end on, this is how powerful these images are. Like they, I really remember this. It seared itself in my brain, obviously. If five years later, having not, you know, I'm like, oh, those ponies, what? Well, People you can't, dressed you, up as ponies, let's. You can't get, unsee the ponies. I cannot unsee the ponies. So this is, you know, it gets so strange. I think it's fair enough to say that, like some porn that how do you, you can't unsee those things. Yeah. What have you, just leave us with one that you've seen and wish you'd maybe not, not see. Um, there are, uh, there's a whole kind of balloon porn. What? Um, that Where? involves how? like women putting on like little girls party dresses and like oh. playing with balloons. So that, you know, obviously that's a scary kind of um thing um in the porn they're grown women but obviously this connects with what you're talking about with some things deep from childhood seem uh, oddly weird so what we're both talking about like birthday party um things so apparently people find birthday parties um very erotic well i guess ritualized things i don't know well let's not go Let's not have me go ranting or like just exploring my threads of fantasy. But so we'll end there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. There are so many themes in the book we did not even get to at all. And I did really love Terry Gross's interview with you, although I thought she was very serious. But, you know, everyone can go listen to that for the kind of PG version. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. For more about this interview and about Lit Up in general, visit us at thelitupshow.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.